Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you'll receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be used for investment advice. Thank you, Tyke Savage, for the introduction to our guest today, Steve Case. Steve is the co-founder of AOL.com, and the founder of Revolution and Rise of the Rest. Rise of the Rest started as a bus tour in emerging startup ecosystems and then became a seed fund. Steve recently wrote and published his latest book, The Rise of the Rest, and shared stories of how entrepreneurs in surprising places are building the new American dream. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it and really appreciated Steve's optimism about the future of America. Without further ado, here's Steve. Steve, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Terrific. Great to be with you, Mike. I really appreciate you coming on the show. So I wanted to first kind of start with what made Washington, D.C. so special to you? I know AOL.com started in Washington, D.C., Revolution started in Washington, D.C. Why wasn't AOL ever originated or formed in you know Silicon Valley or Seattle? And why did you also choose Revolution for it to be in uh, D.C.? Well, a little bit by accident for me, but not really by accident in terms of AOL itself. In terms of for me, I moved to the Washington, D.C. area almost four decades ago to join a startup that was in Northern Virginia that failed. But two of the people I met there and I went off and started America Online in in, uh, 1985. So that's why I was in the D.C. area. In terms of uh, AOL specifically, part of the reason it was birthed here is the Internet was birthed here. The initial internet investment fund, the government, over half a century ago in what was uh, kind of the the DARPA net for a while and then ARPA net uh, really was the foundational technology that created the internet and also some of the policies that needed to change to commercialize the internet, to give it access to people and businesses instead of just the government and educational institutions kind of also needed needed to change. So even though I kind of moved here a little bit by accident and it was a little harder to start and scale a company here given that was there wasn't much venture capital and there wasn't much of a startup culture back then. You know, it, it has developed nicely since. And as an example, one of these, what we call rise of the rest cities. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, I mean, it was by accident, but at the same time, it actually became vital or, you know, a great uh, city to start, you know, an, an internet company since the internet was burdened in D.C. So that's um, that's amazing. Yeah, and I would say, just to add to that, that, that part of the reason to answer your question about revolution and, and, and even more recently, I actually think the mega trends in the venture capital world in the next decade are around place and around policy. That place, you know, I think will matter more, and I think you will start seeing an acceleration of the company starting and scaling outside of the traditional tech hub, Silicon Valley, New York City, Boston, et cetera, as you well know. And part of the reason I wrote the book on Rise of Rest is we've now invested in 100 cities, and it's remarkable how many cities are really rising as startup cities. So I think venture investors will need to expand their periphery to include different places around the country. And the other around policy, some of the biggest industries that are up for grabs in, in this next chapter, things like healthcare, food and agriculture, financial services, even a lot of things happening in, in, in sports with sports tech, have a government you know kind of aspect to them, a regulation aspect to them, which is frustrating at one level, but it's just the reality of, of things like uh, you know healthcare, given how fundamental it is in terms of people's lives. So I think understanding policy 
and seeing it as uh, both a problem to get through, but also an opportunity once you do get through, I think is going to be increasingly important. Some of the legislation that passed recently in the last couple of months around the Chips and Science Act and some of the Inflation Reduction Act, which funding a lot of investment in climate tech, funding a lot of focus on regional hubs, I think is a reminder that policy is going to matter more. So for those out there listening to your, your show, I would think, you know, I'm sure some are already focused on place. In fact, many may be in different parts of the country. But if you're not, I'd encourage you to focus more on places outside of the coastal tech hubs. And I'd also encourage you to think more about the role of policy because I think that's going to unlock some of the biggest investment gains in the next you know, 10 or 20 years for the companies that really can figure that out. Is that going to be, do you think, well, already has it been like an incredible value add to have bring on like an investment partner or someone that actually understands and knows policy? Yeah, I think that was probably not necessary 10 years ago when a lot of the big successes, social media, for example, really was about, you know, dropping an app in the app store, hoping it spread virally, then figuring out some way to monetize it. But some of the, you know, the companies that are becoming, you know, pretty important, the policy aspect is it's critical. One, we back with our Revolution Growth Fund, Clear, you know, built biometric technology, has done a lot of things with the, you know, on the transportation side, getting, you know, su- you know support from both airports and airlines to basically do the clear kind of a fast pass when you're going through an airport. That's an example of, of, uh, of policy. Tempus, a company we backed in Chicago, uh, in precision medicine, a lot of policy implications around, you know, diagnosing cancer and other kinds of uh, diseases, even some that might surprise people. We were one of the early investors in DraftKings that went public a couple of years ago. They had some policy challenges when we first invested. Actually, the state of New York had shut them down. The attorney general had shut them down. So that was kind of a problem. But also, not long after we invested, there was a Supreme Court ruling that unlocked a big opportunity for them as different states could make different rules around gaming. So, it, you know, policy regulations aren't just a problem. It also can be an unlock that could significantly grow the potential company opportunity. So I think it's going to become much more important. And yeah, being in Washington, D.C. Uh, probably gives us a little bit of a home court advantage on that, a little bit of a perspective on on how, uh, you know, whether it be regulators here or Congress here uh, or the White House might make changes in, in, in the policy that could open up some opportunities and accelerate some opportunities and also make others more and more challenging. When you resigned from AOL in 2003 and then Revolution, I know, founded in, in 2005, was the thesis and the thought behind Revolution, was that always to invest and look for companies that are outside in Silicon Valley? Because I know Rise of the West came later in, in 2014, but kind of through those early years, was that always kind of like your original thinking? There's a little bit of a bias in terms of investing outside of Silicon Valley, but it was not the founding principle when we first started in 2005. It really was to back, you know, interesting companies, you know, interesting entrepreneurs doing, you know, disruptive things. And particularly, you know, a number of them in the early days were, were kind of tech-enabled disruption of, of big uh, sectors of the economy, uh, big aspects of particularly consumer businesses. And that was sort of the first phase for the first five or six years. And at the time, frankly, it was just my capital. It was, it was called Revolution, but I was the only investor. It was only about 10 or 12 years ago that we opened up Revolution, first with our Revolution Growth Fund, and then with our Revolution Ventures Fund, and then more recently with our Rise of the Rest Seed Fund to have you know outside investors, outside you know, LPs. Uh, so it's it's evolved, and over time it has evolved to be more focused around place, around Rise of the Rest specifically, and as I said earlier, around uh, policy. What was the insight that kind of led? I know that, that maybe that wasn't like the initial 
um, thought process behind Revolution, as you, as you stated, for it, you know, focusing on on areas outside of Silicon Valley, you were, you know, maybe dipping your toes into um, investing full time since leaving AOL. But where did that kind of formation of this thesis about being very clear and direct about we're going to kind of take this differentiated approach? This is, you know, pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, when people weren't really maybe think a lot of funds maybe weren't thinking about investing in places outside and maybe talent hadn't quite moved that way. But what was kind of like the early formation of your mind that there's actually something here? Well, I'd say the first first part of it, going back probably 15 years ago, was recognizing, goes back to your earlier question, you know, we started and, and, and scaled AOL in the D.C. area. Uh, we therefore saw more and more people in the D.C. area, but it was not a, a place that was getting a lot of attention from venture capital. So we said, well, that's an area where we think a lot of opportunity, uh, less competition. You know, why don't we focus on that? So that was part of it, being very pragmatic about it. And also, I think that experience I had in, in starting and scaling America Online in this area where it was not a tech hub at the time, and since then it's developed nicely, but at the time it was, it was none of our venture capital came from the D.C. area. It came from other parts of the, you know, the country. And it was hard to get people to believe in our little company, our little startup, and leave a big safe job to, you know, join our fledgling, you know, you know, startup. So I think that gave me a little bit of an insight into it. And then it really accelerated about, you know, 10 years ago when I was asked to lead an effort by uh, the, for the White House. President Obama asked me to chair something called Startup America Partnership. And then I worked with him on a jobs council that created the Jobs Act, the Jumpstarting Our Business Startups Act. And that really clarified some of my thinking because it was, it was the data was pretty compelling that the role of that new companies, startups play in job creation. And also it was pretty clear that there was a, a, a linkage between, as you know, and everybody listening to this knows, the companies that raise venture capital and the companies that are most successful create the most value, create the most jobs. But then if you looked at the data, the fact that 75% of that venture capital was going to just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts, seemed both crazy from a kind of country standpoint, crazy from an investment standpoint, but also opened our eyes to the opportunity to, to spend more time in different parts of the, the country work with regional venture capitalists all around the country uh, and pursue this this uh, this rise of the rest strategy. So it sort of evolved uh, over time. But the more we got into it, the more we decided it really was a big opportunity. And ultimately, the reason I wrote the book, The Rise of the Rest, that came out just a, a few weeks ago, is it was so uh, amazing to visit all these different places, uh, initially with bus tours and then more recently with our investment team and see what's happening in all these different, you know, different uh, cities and see what some of these entrepreneurs were building, which were some amazing companies that really had the potential to generate, you know, unbelievable kind of returns while also having a positive impact in, in, their, in these communities. And so that really led us to focus even more and more on, on the rise of the rest. What I also loved about the book was how you're kind of pooling all these people that are involved in the community from different backgrounds, whether it's entrepreneurs, whether it's government officials, you know, mayors, maybe governors, and, and these people from many different parts that of that obviously want a really strong community and of you know entrepreneurship. Do you think on the job creation side, since this is such a main point for you know politicians, I think you touched on this a little bit in the book, how when you think about job creation, it's maybe luring some of the big companies to come from out of state to your city or, you know, to your state. Do you think that there's a bit of a shift in thinking where it's, okay, actually, let's actually homegrown, like homegrown these companies ourselves rather than trying to lure a company to come out of state? 
Yeah, no, I think uh, economic development for most states a decade ago was overwhelmingly focused on big companies. How do you get a big company to move a headquarters? How do you get a big company to open a factory or customer service center or data center or something like that? And that's always going to be part of it. But it has been encouraging to see in in the last few years in particular how many uh, governors and mayors also recognize that the better strategy is to create a strong, thriving startup community so more new companies can get started. And of course, some of those will fail. That's the nature of startups. But some of those could very well be the big companies of tomorrow, the Fortune 500 companies of tomorrow. So that's been a a good pivot to see where there is much more focus on what can be done in different cities to create that that thriving startup community. Take me back a little bit to maybe 2014 when you were thinking about this idea of making of having this bus and go around to different cities. What was your selection process for cities? What were some of the attributes that kind of needed to be there in order for you to be interested? Well, I'd answer it in two ways. The first is in terms of the bus tour specifically, which, as you said, started about eight years ago. We decided to pick a particular region of the country and then pick some cities that were on the rise. Hadn't yet risen, you know, but we're showing real momentum with the idea that you know, if we're, if we're there, you know, maybe we, we learn some things in the process, but also maybe we catalyze a little bit more of a focus on, on startups, a little bit more of a collaborative community focused on supporting entrepreneurs. So that's how we started with the, with the bus tour, the first bus tour. We started in Detroit, then went to Pittsburgh, then went to Cincinnati, then went to Nashville, and we've done you know, seven tours since uh, over the years. And, and have gone to you know forty something cities uh, with with our bus. But the second part of the answer is, while it started as a bus tour, it quickly evolved into a much more of an investment strategy where we said, let's launch funds that do invest in this early seed stage, but only do that in partnership with regional venture investors. So we've co-invested now with over 300 regional venture firms who collectively have helped us source opportunities. So that's why we have 200 investments in 100 cities. It's because of the partnerships with hundreds of regional venture firms. And that now is the the major way we're, we are investing. We are letting the, the, the regional firms lead the Around, take the board seats, and then we're making a, a smaller investment, usually you know four or five hundred thousand dollars as an initial check. Obviously, reserving some capital for for some follow-on uh, investments, and then networking those entrepreneurs and the venture firms we work together into this part of this rise of the rest you know, network. And and so that's been the principal strategy on the rise of the rest side, and which is different than what we've done on the what I talked about earlier with Revolution Growth and Revolution Ventures. There, we make a you know handful of investments each year for on the venture side and the growth side, we do lead those rounds. We do take board seats. So it, it's much more of a traditional you know, venture strategy just for the rise of a seed fund that we're trying to be catalytic capital by building out this rise of the rest network in partnership with regional venture firms. Now, on the venture side and the growth side, is that primarily looking at what companies that have come through? Is there a strategy that relates to um, the seed fund where it comes to follow on or is that, or is that completely separate? No, so far we've managed them as separate. They're, they're certainly they're certainly looking at uh, opportunities, but and part of the, th- the benefit of being in these cities, even with the seed fund, we sometimes find opportunities that might make more sense for one of our later stage funds. I expect there'll be more of that uh, over time, but they really are set up with independent teams uh, executing different strategies with uh, with uh, somewhat different you know sets of uh, LPs as our investors. And on the venture and growth side, it is more you know kind of the traditional institutional you know, LPs on the you know, the rise rest seed fund side, it's actually just individuals, but prominent entrepreneurs and, and investors, people like Jeff Bezos and Howard Schultz and Sarah Blakely and Meg Whitman, 
Eric Schmidt, you know, venture folks like John Doerr and Jim Breyer, private equity folks like Henry Kravis and David Rubenstein, hedge fund folks like Ray Dalio. So a really great group of individuals who are successful entrepreneurs and, and executives and investors. And they're the LPs in our, in our Rise of the Rest uh, seed fund. So on the venture side and the growth side, that also doesn't have any kind of like thesis around or, or doesn't have to be investing outside in Silicon Valley. It's like a much more uh, traditional fund structures. More traditional, although we do think we have some strategic advantages outside of Silicon Valley. So we could, would be open to investing there, but you know, all our investments are outside of you know, Silicon Valley. And that is, you know, and everybody listening knows is there's so much capital there, so many venture firms there. We, we said, well, let, let's, let's focus where we think we can add more value, be more differentiated, which is, you know, the rest of the country. Yeah, understood. I mean, on the seed fund side too, like, it's so hard to just pick winners in general. I understand this thesis around investing outside in Silicon Valley, but why only focus on like those areas too when it's so hard to to pick winners in in general? Well, the way we think of it is uh, how we define the the rise of seed fund specifically is we'll invest outside of the three major you know, tech up. So outside of the San Francisco area, outside of New York City, outside of Boston, which means we can and do invest in most of the rest of the country. And there are a lot of great entrepreneurs building great companies in most of the rest of the you know, country. So we see, you know, plenty of opportunities and and uh, we're pursuing, you know, plenty of opportunities across a number of different, you know, kind of sectors, again, in partnership with regional you know, venture firms. And we think over the next decade, more and more of the real breakout companies will be in these these other places. Maybe it's Atlanta, maybe it's Chicago, maybe it's in Indianapolis, maybe it's Detroit, you know, a variety of different cities where we've invested in. So we're trying to position ourselves to really be the one of the leading firms in these rise of the rest cities. What makes a city in your mind like an up and coming thriving startup city? Like because I know you also get pitched, you know, kind of pitched a lot about rise of the rest, come to our city and come here. What's kind of your decision making process and what are maybe some of the attributes that you have to see in order for um, for a city to be interesting to you? Well, we've worked hard over the last decade in trying to understand kind of what makes for a thriving startup city. We've published a number of reports, even I have a whole chapter in the in the Rise of the Rest book on, on this. And so there's a number of different factors. In terms of picking cities that we want to visit by our bus, it's got to have some momentum and something happening that is encouraging, uh, but at the same time has not yet arrived. So there's some cities outside of San Francisco, outside of New York, outside of Boston that we haven't come to with our bus, cities like a Seattle or an Austin. And the reason for that is they're doing fine, thank you very much. They, yeah, they our, our being there is not necessarily going to be catalytic. Now, sometimes we get pushed back. Just last week, I was doing a podcast with folks in Austin, and they were like, why, why will you come to Austin? Well, the answer was because Austin's doing doing pretty well. And Already we're trying there. to identify sort of the, the next Austin, the next uh, Seattle's. Uh, so it, it's got to have some... Uh, some momentum, but still not really uh, have been, you know, you know, kind of gotten that kind of tipping point, if you will, that results in, you know, more people focusing on it in terms of backing companies, both people in the in that particular city backing the companies, as well as people from other parts of the country understanding their their uh, their great companies there. One of the things that's great to see, and we've now seen this in more and more. Uh, cities, and I write about a number of them in, in the book, are these these tentpole companies that their success begets more success for others. A recent example of that is in Indianapolis. Part of the reason it's grown uh, well in the last decade, particularly around enterprise software, is the success of Exact Target, 
that was acquired by Salesforce. Salesforce now has 2,000 employees in Indianapolis. It's the second largest Salesforce city outside of San Francisco itself. And a number of the people, including Scott Dorsey, the founder of, of uh, uh, Exact Targets, gone on to start a, a firm. And, and, and other people that were in the early days of Exact Target have started new companies or backed new companies. And that's where you see this, this sort of a network effect kicking in. And that's happening now in more and more you know, cities. So that's part of the reason why there's an acceleration in terms of this this rise of the rest. I really enjoyed the book and really hearing um, all the stories. One conversation that really comes to mind was when you were in Philadelphia and you, and you were talking with Mayor Nutter about how he was saying, um, I forget the line, but pretty much we need to do, there needs to be more of this in Philadelphia. How do you think, because it's such a big deal when the kind of rise arrest comes into your city, you, you're you bringing all these different community people that are, you know, part of the community together. You have this incredible pitch competition. How, once you leave, how do you think about that the kind of momentum that you have? How can a city then kind of keep up that momentum in order to, to then become a stronger community per se? Well, you're kind of say that. You know, we have got a lot of positive feedback from, from cities where we have visited. The way we do this is not really about showing up. You know, our, our team spends six plus months you know, before we show up working with people in the community, kind of advancing what we're going to you know, visit, trying to understand some of the dynamics, both some, some good things that are working that we need to really spotlight, as well as some challenges the city might have that we need to help you know, kind of catalyze more, more attention on. Then when we leave... You know, we're spending the next several years, you know, still quite connected. We've even hosted Rise and Rest summits for, our, for so far, we've done one with over 100 you know, venture investors from different parts of the country, actually, and two of those, trying to bring them pe- those people together and continue to, to work together, learn from each other, obviously share deal flow, things like that. So it's not about just showing up. It's the work that happens before we're there and the work that happens after we're there. And the cities generally are trying to take advantage of the fact that we are showing up and we're bringing some media attention, bringing investors from other parts of the country uh, to, to their, their city as, as a way to create kind of a tipping point for their city and, and build on it. I, I was just in Phoenix uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. We were there with our bus tour five or six years ago. At the time, it was just starting to emerge as, as a startup city. It was just trying to get more you know, attention from people you know, locally. And now things have scaled quite, quite nicely. they capitalized on the fact that we were there uh, and and used that as a way to build momentum uh, long after we left. And so that's what we love to see where, where our, our being there can be helpful and in some cases even even catalytic, as, as uh, you mentioned, Mayor Nutter was saying. But the real work then continues after we leave to build on that and, and create more excitement, get some more capital locally, backing entrepreneurs, try to you know, attract more attention from coastal you know, investors to see what's happening in these particular you know, cities. So it's a classic case of momentum begets momentum. And how do you create that network effect? How do you create that increasing returns? How do you create that tipping point uh, in, in more cities? What's maybe something that's maybe not obvious about creating that, that tipping point in cities that, you know, for creating a startup community? Well, I'd say so there's some things that are that are more obvious, like the idea I mentioned of like tentpole companies. Something that's less obvious is how critical collaboration is. And and, and in many of these cities, 
uh, it's, it tends to be kind of fragmented, sort of siloed, that there are different people doing different things, but they're not doing it in a very you know, connected way, not a very collaborative way. And the other part is they generally are not doing that good a job of telling their story to other people. So people don't really know what's happening in, in a particular city. And that's been the biggest surprise and as people have read the, the Rise of the Rest book is how many cities are really thriving. And many of them, for most of the readers, they had no clue that things were happening there, including some people, by the way, who actually grew up in these cities or went to school in these cities, but left, you know, 10 or 20 years ago and haven't really been paying attention. And uh, that's been some of the, the you know, the, the more interesting feedback is how many people have said, I, I actually grew up in, say, Chattanooga, and I didn't really know what was happening there. And after you know, reading the book, I now realize there's more, more happening there. So I, as a, as a VC, I'm going to pay more attention to that. Or in some cases, people have actually decided to move back to some of these cities. And, and we saw an acceleration of that during the pandemic. You know, March 2020 was happening and you were thinking not only, you know, personally, but just how you thought about maybe distribution when it came to um, maybe entrepreneurship, also talent. Um, what was kind of going through your mind at that point? And has your thesis at all changed when it comes to Rise of the Rest as it relates to now during the pandemic? I'd say like most people, at the very beginning of the pandemic, the first you know, month or two, I was just trying to absorb it and, and trying to you know, do what we could to focus on, on, the, on the companies we had backed and how do we make sure we help them through this. Some, some were, were more challenged by it. Some obviously benefited you know, by it. So that was the initial almost triage you know, stage. But it then became apparent uh, fairly quickly that something fundamental was happening, almost like the shake the snow globe moment for society, which started with uh, the needing to shift quickly to obviously remote work and Zoom meetings and, and, and things like that, but also then led to some people starting to move back to cities that they left, or even in some cases, cities they had not, you know, not lived in before, but chose during the pandemic to to live there. And, and for many, they thought they might just be there for a couple of months. But after a while, they said, you know, come to think of it, I kind of like it here. And I want to continue to work here, you know, either working remotely for some you know, organization that I that some headquartered someplace else, or maybe do something in that particular city, you know, start a venture firm in that city or start a company in that in that in that city. And so that's where it became clear and something more profound was happening, which actually when I decided to you know, write the book, because we'd been seeing momentum building over the past you know, decade as we've been working on Rise Rest. And pretty much every year, it was, it was, there was an improvement in terms of how many new venture firms were started in these Rise of the Rest cities, how many companies were backed in, in these Rise of the Rest cities. Over the last decade, 1,400 new venture firms started in Rise of the Rest cities, and there was a six-fold increase in venture capital going to Rise of the Rest cities. So it was, it was building. But the pandemic just you know, felt early on to be a tipping point. And that's proven to be the case. Nobody knows exactly how this will play out. But clearly, a lot of uh, investors who historically would only consider investing in a company if they met in person or an in-person pitch meeting suddenly realized they could use Zoom as a way to connect to other entrepreneurs. And that included giving them more flexibility in terms of where those entrepreneurs might be uh, might be located and did lead some people to decide to, as I said before, move someplace else. So I think it has been an interesting dynamic that ultimately, if we look back at this pandemic, and obviously there are many, many tragic aspects to it, uh, but one silver lining, if you're looking for one, is that really did result in an acceleration of this whole idea of the rise of the rest, which ultimately will result in more new companies starting, more cities rising because of the pandemic. I've had on investors on the show that have said, it's okay to found a company, like they're totally fine 
um, and it could work to found a company in a secondary or tertiary market. But when it comes to scale, you need to plan to move to Silicon Valley or these places that have you know incredible talent. I understand that Rise of the Rest Fund, you're investing at seed. And so when these companies are pretty early, when you are advising some of these companies and thinking about companies, companies at a scale, is that kind of the path still? Or how do you think about this question when it comes to scale? No, I don't think it's the path. It, it may be the path for some, but I, I don't think it's it's the path for, for most. And you know, it's quite different than maybe ten or fifteen years ago, where you know the, it was almost the the only path. But the reason it's changing is it goes back to this possibility of remote work. It, it is some of the people you might need to scale that company when you're going from fifty people to five hundred people to five thousand people that have really experienced building a company, hyper growing. Uh, 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 a company, blitzscaling a company, now you can tap into without requiring them to move to your city. And so this opening up of remote work, you know, kind of comes in lots of different ways. But one of them, and we're seeing this in a number of the of these Rise of the Rest cities already, are they're able to tap into some of the talent they need to, to scale. The other dynamic that's kicking in is many companies, not all companies, but many companies do have a strategy to be more regionally distributed. It's not necessarily all remote, but but have some some pockets of, of activity. So maybe instead of being in one city, they're in you know two or three or, or four cities and have sort of centers of gravity in, in different uh, different cities. So it certainly depends on what you're building, and, and different companies will have different dynamics. But we're seeing more companies able to scale in these rise the rest cities, not feeling like they need to need to move and being able to tap into much more of a, a global talent pool uh, that really does enable them to uh, stay where they are, scale where they are, while bringing in some of the, the blitzscaling expertise they need at, at, at when they get to that kind of inflection point. How also do you think about distributed workforce versus everyone goes to the office and the same um, community. Like I know that right now we're still in kind of the COVID period, but as we kind of come out of COVID period and people are going back into the office, how do you think about overall like collaboration and what, and what the right mix should be when you're looking at companies? I think it varies. It varies depending on uh, what the company is trying to accomplish. And we have within our portfolio some examples of companies that are, you know, fully remote, you know, kind of launched as, as, as remote only and re- intend to remain remote only. Uh, we have some companies that are fully in person, and, and, and that tends to be more common in a lot of these rise to rest cities in the middle of the country, where a couple weeks ago I was in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, for example, one of the companies we backed, Acre Trader now has 150 employees, and they basically in the office and have been in the office for a good bit of time. And then, of course, uh, many, indeed most, are somewhere in the middle, some version of hybrid, and people are testing different versions versions of that out. Uh, but uh, it'll take some time for that to play out. So I don't think it's going to be a one size fits all. I think there'll be different companies that adopt different you know, practices. I think it's going to be trickier to manage you know, in terms of building teams and culture than maybe we might have uh, expected. Uh, but we're seeing many, many examples uh, play out. And uh, no doubt that some of the technologies that support you know, remote work will continue to improve, likely at a you know, ex- you know, accelerating pace that makes that you know more possible for more people. Uh, yet I still think many companies will see the value of, of being together, whether that's you know a couple days a week or having an offsite every couple months. Different different companies will make different decisions there. I think the main point, if you look at take a step back from it, is it's sort of this unlock in terms of. Of feeling like you have to be in in, in a place like you know, like like Silicon Valley to have a successful career, I, I think there's some still some advantages to be there for sure. It still will be the most uh, vibrant startup ecosystem in the country, indeed in the world, for for many years to come. 
when we talk about the rise of the rest, we're not predicting the fall of Silicon Valley. We're just predicting the rise of dozens of other cities that will become stronger and stronger, you know, startup, you know, communities and the pandemic and this whole uh, ability to, you know, have more flexibility in terms of how you work and when you work and, and so forth, uh, you know, just will will be, uh, I think, uh, one of the big accelerators kind of wind at the back of the rise of the rest. How do you think about right now the current state of seed investing on a geographic level? Do you find, since I know that you know the economy is very different to where it was last year, and also maybe deployment on capital, it's pretty different. Are you finding that investors maybe are thinking about, let's focus on major markets and not maybe secondary tertiary markets, and just focus on you know the Silicon Valleys and the New Yorks because of the state of the market? Or are you seeing actually there's actually more growth in in some of the secondary or, or tertiary when it comes to actually the amount of capital that, that goes toward the, those communities? I think it's still early to say. There's uh, for sure some firms that, that were experimenting in, in the, during the pandemic with investing in other places, but just had their toe in the water. Some may decide to you know, go back to what they were doing before and just you know, invest in, in particular places. But I think the majority that, that have you know, been exploring this over the last you know, couple of years are identifying interesting companies that have the potential to generate, you know, top tier returns and are starting to build out some of their own networks in terms of some of these cities. One of the things, not surprisingly, we hear from the coastal investors who are intrigued with the rise of rest strategy and want to figure out ways to invest in some of these rising cities is they, they may have good networks in Silicon Valley, but they don't necessarily know, you know, how to build a network in other parts of the country. And so the ones who have been building those networks, and there's obviously a lot of different ways to do that, uh, are likely to continue to invest in those cities. Cities because they are seeing, you know, really you know, compelling investment opportunities in these in these other cities. But but it'll be all over the map. Some will, you know, kind of, you know, go back to you know basics. Others will will accelerate their activities in these other 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 cities. And and uh, so I think it will be a you know a mixed bag overall. I would say with the economy. What you're starting to see now, and I expect it will pick up in the next year or two, is some of these really big companies, these large incumbents in some of the you know key industries, because they feel a little under pressure, are looking to trim costs. Why you're, which is why you're seeing you know some some layoffs with some you know some big companies or, or freezing new hires, and some are also taking a fresh look at at uh, some of their innovation uh, initiatives. And if you know if it's something they think is a good idea, but it's going to cost a lot of money in the short run and might take ten years before it pays off. A lot a lot of those initiatives get cut historically, which actually just creates more opportunity for for entrepreneurs who are attacking some of those uh, those opportunities. No, thank you for that. Um, what I maybe most appreciated about your book, to be honest, was your optimism for America, since it seems like in this day and age, there's a lot of pessimism going around. How do you think about America's position right now when it comes to the ability to innovate on the world stage, um, maybe compared to the rest of the world? And just the overall kind of strength in America's position when it comes to entrepreneurship. Well, I'd say on the positive side, America remains the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world. We still have a pioneering spirit that we are unleashing now all across the, the country in terms of what's happening with these with these rising cities, which I think is is, is positive. And I think it would certainly within our grasp to continue to be the you know the leader of, of, of the pack. You know, that said, we you know have to look at the data and over the last you know 25 years, you know, if you look at global venture capital, uh, at one point the US had over 90% of global venture capital. Now it's less than 50%. So clearly we're seeing the globalization of 
entrepreneurs. We're seeing countries like China making significant investments in technology, AI, robotics, many other other areas. Uh, and so it's kind of game on. And and meanwhile, we've gotten unfortunately more more uh, difficult for you know immigrants who want to move into this country and start companies here to come here or stay here. And so one of the great things about this country over the past couple hundred years is we've been this magnet for people and ideas who want to be builders. And and uh, we need to make sure we continue to maintain that that new magnet position. So I am, as you said, optimistic. Anybody reading this book and learning about the dozens of entrepreneurs building amazing companies in dozens of cities, reimagining some big industries, industries creating lots of jobs in, in those in those communities that that have felt left out and left behind. It is an optimistic story, and I, I do believe America can and should continue to lead. But at the same time. We need to be thoughtful and careful around immigration policy. We need to be thoughtful around some of the you know, kind of global competitive you know, dynamics and, and not just be complacent. Uh, and so I'm overall very positive, and as you, as you, you know, note from reading the book. Uh, but at the same time, I'm eyes wide open of some of the challenges that we face as a nation, and, and hopefully we'll address them. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Steve. What kind of needs to come maybe next when it comes to developing more communities? I'd say that I'd say in, in general, in terms of this next phase of rise, the rest, next phase of these these rising cities, nothing beats success, and you know, success begets success. And so, as we start seeing more of these companies that really do break out and really do surprise you know people, a company like Mailchimp selling for twelve billion dollars in Atlanta, or a company like. Uh, Epic, which is the leader in you know electronic medical records, now having over ten thousand employees you know, outside of Madison, uh, Wisconsin. I could give you many other examples, obviously that that are in the book. When people see that happening, then they suddenly believe it's possible. It's, it's interesting to look at history that people thought it was not possible to run a four minute mile. Suddenly, one person did, and a bunch of other people followed quickly after because they knew it could be done. It seemed like it was not possible to to climb Mount Everest once one person did. Suddenly, a bunch of other people did. And you see that same dynamic in these communities. When you see the growth of a significant you know, company that really does establish that city, uh, it, it leads other people to believe that they, too, have a shot, whether they be entrepreneurs or investors. And as I said before, some of the people that were part of those successful companies then want to go off and either start new companies or back new companies. And, and that really creates a, an acceleration in these rising cities. And thankfully, we're seeing that in more and more cities uh, as we've traveled around over the last decade. What would you say to a Silicon Valley investor that maybe only invests in Bay Area startups or you know New York or maybe someone in, in, in New York only invests in New York startups that said, okay, like, this is great. These examples that you've said in the book are you know incredible stories and different, but why should I go through the effort and going across all the different kind of areas in the US to kind of find these diamonds in the roughs where there's so much innovation that's kind of coming out of my of where I live and, and I can just build community in here and it's a lot more kind of efficient with my time. Well, it's obviously been the, the traditional argument, and some will continue to run that play. I think what I would say in response is there are a lot of really great entrepreneurs building some what could be very valuable companies in different parts of the country. And it seems if you have a narrow aperture, you're only assuming that people, you know, that you can building companies where you can drive to them are going to be in your portfolio of investments, you likely are going to miss out on some of the you know, great opportunities in this next chapter. So just 
opening your mind, opening your eyes, the possibility that there is a dispersion of talent, that some of the people that historically might have moved to Silicon Valley are staying where they are. Some of the people who previously did move to Silicon Valley might be moving back to some of these cities and bringing their own you know, expertise and networks with them. I think that's going to advantage more and more of these rising cities. Some of the, you know, certainly Stanford and Berkeley or Caltech are great universities, but some of the great research universities in the country are in places like Ann Arbor with Michigan or Columbia. Columbus with Ohio State or Pittsburgh with Carnegie Mellon or Phoenix with Arizona State or Atlanta with Georgia Tech. These are Madison, Wisconsin. These are great universities. And now increasingly more of the people graduating from those places are staying where they are and building where they are. And so that's where the, I think the next wave of companies would be. If you look at the you know, American history, you know, cities rise and fall. And, and uh, even the early days of the internet, when companies like mine, America Online, were starting in in the, in the Northern Virginia area. Uh, at the time, a lot of the companies that were building that first wave of the internet were in different parts of the, you know, the country. Hayes, the modem company, was in Atlanta. Sprint, the communications company, was in Kansas City. IBM's PC operations were in Boca Raton, Florida. Dell was in Austin. Gateway was in South Dakota. Microsoft actually started in Albuquerque before moving to Seattle. And so we've seen a history of innovation being more dispersed. I think what's happened in the last 20 years has been unique, and it really was when and Silicon Valley kind of became so prominent, indeed so dominant. I don't think that's going to be the case in the next you know, 20 years. So you likely will miss out on some great investment opportunities if you're not willing to look beyond you know, the Bay Area zip codes. You had a really good, I think, line in the book how you know America kind of put all, all their eggs in one basket when it comes to innovation in Detroit with cars and automobiles. And it was kind of this one location for, for innovation and lasted for a number of years, but then it was obviously very, very challenging and, and things changed. So not to say that that will happen necessarily with Silicon Valley, but there is kind of some parallels when it comes to maybe one location being concentrated on doing one thing well, which Silicon Valley is with technology. Yeah, and I also would say, and you know, it could, from and the venture investors listening know it that there, although there are many, many, many advantages of Silicon Valley, and most of those advantages will be sustained. There are also challenges in terms of that area, in terms of you know hiring people, keeping people. The retention rates are pretty low. Cost of living, cost of operating, is, you know, pretty high. So there are there are some structural things that are, and even some on the policy side, the state levels, there's some issues that are that are, are you know, becoming more problematic for some some people. So as I said before, I, I'm bullish on Silicon Valley. I think it will for sure be the continue to be the leader of the pack. Uh, but putting all your eggs in that basket, I think will likely, like many investment strategies, diversification uh, is helpful, and diversifying beyond Silicon Valley likely will be. Uh, helpful, if not essential, for most venture capitalists in this next 10 or 20 years. I know on the investment side, because you be just across your portfolio and across all the stories that you shared and rise the rest, you're a generalist, it seems, you know, you invest in, in a different number of different categories. What's part of your maybe due diligence process and how you evaluate companies? And is it a bit thematic driven? Is it not? Would love to kind of hear a little bit more about your diligence process. Well, because uh, we have these three strategies and three teams, Revolution Growth, Revolution Ventures, and the Rise of a Seed Fund, they're all each a little bit different. In the later stage you know, fund, particularly Revolution Growth, we actually do have a number of sectors that we're focused on that we're you know, kind of more deeply involved. Focused. Sports tech, for example, because of our investments in DraftKings and Sport Radar. Ted Leonsis is a partner uh, with Revolution Growth, and he owns a sports team, many of the sports teams in the Washington, D.C. area. So sports tech is an obvious area. We've done a number of things in prop tech because that's an area that we think is pretty interesting. We've done some things in health tech, done some things in logistics. So it tends to be more sector specific where we have built significant kind of uh, 
you know, domain expertise, significant networks in those particular sectors. It's really just with Rise the Rest because it's a more place-based strategy and more of a partner Koretsu strategy where we're co-investing with regional venture firms. That's where we're more sector agnostic. What's that been like co-investing with different, you know, venture firms regionally? Because um, it seems like as well you have, since you have all these pockets, you know, regionally, you can also make introductions as well to these regional investors on a wider scale. Yeah, what we're trying to do, in essence, it goes back to our discussion of Silicon Valley. One of the great things about Silicon Valley is the network density in Silicon Valley, the density of builders, the density of investors. What we're trying to build with the Rise of the Rest network is a similar network and build out the density of that network. Even though it's geographically dispersed, how do you build a, a more interconnected network of investors, of entrepreneurs, of community builders, of mayors, of university presidents? So that's really been the, the focus. Of, of rise the rest. How do you able to how do you build things that together can have a lot more impact? In terms of the specific question, because we have invested now with co-invest with hundreds of regional venture firms, and generally they are specializing in particular cities or at least particular regions, they can bring the best of what they know in terms of what's happening in their particular city, building on some of the domain expertise in that particular city, and we can connect them to others in our network, particularly as they as they scale up. So it's a it's sort of a win win in that respect. Cool. That's incredible. That's that's awesome. What's one book that you feel that you've maybe gifted the most or maybe had the most impact on you? Good question. Good. I've read a lot of books. I would say uh, one recently, uh, it's, it's sort of you know, a little bit in the family, if you will. My wife, Jean, who's the chairman of the National Geographic Society, wrote a book about three years ago called Be Fearless, which partly had some of the lessons learned from you know National Geographic's 130 years of expeditions and some, you know, some of the greatest explorers, but also had a lot of lessons that did apply to, to entrepreneurs and to investors. So, so Be Fearless would be certainly one that I've shared rather broadly in the, in the last couple of years. That's awesome. No, that's awesome. I will definitely add Be Fearless to our book list. That's great. That's great. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Great being with you. And thanks for doing this. I understand you've now had over 250 episodes. So that's amazing. Thank you. That's so kind, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, keep keep up the great work. Thanks. Thanks. And I'm also, I'm a big Washington Capitals fan. So go Caps. All right. Go Caps. I'll let Ted know. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Love it. Love it. All right. Thanks, Steve. Really appreciate your time. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Steve. I highly recommend picking up your copy of The Rise of the Rest. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.